Hello, friends. This is the Messenger Podcast, where our goal is to develop messengers whose lives tell the story of the gospel. I'm Addison Bevere, and I cannot believe that it's 2020. Like I remember thinking about 2020 when I was a kid, and that was so far in the future. And now it's here, and I have four kids, and my oldest kid is 10. Anyway, I got to stop this, otherwise I'm going to start getting depressed. But seriously, 2020, y'all, it's not just the beginning of a new year. It's the beginning of a new decade. And I and at this time of the year it seems like everyone's thinking about what they need to change, how they need to grow, where they need to go. It's the new year resolution time. And uh, I think people when you boil it all down, they're looking for that ever elusive good life that seems to slip through their fingers every year. And so I want to do something special for y'all today. And I want to share the first chapter of my new book Saints Becoming More Than Christians, which comes out on January 21st. So it comes out this month. And this chapter is, interestingly enough, entitled The Good Life. So enjoy. The Good Life. Good teacher, what must I do to experience life? You know, the good life. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. My paraphrase. I recently found, hidden in plain sight, the secret formula for writing a best-selling book. Yes, you heard that right. My discovery created a surge of power that I could hardly handle. It felt like learning the winning lottery numbers before the tickets had even been sold. Everything in my life was about to change. Okay, I may have overstated a bit. It's bad form to begin with a lie, so I confess that I didn't actually find the secret sauce of publishing. What I did discover is that many of the best-selling books have three things in common, three characteristics that undoubtedly help them climb bestseller lists and empty our wallets. Because I love books, I'm going to share my findings with you, just in case you want to write a bestseller one day. First, use provocative language in your title. Swearing is best. I could give some examples, but you get the idea. Second, write a self-help book. People seem to like learning about themselves and finding ways to make themselves better. Go figure. Third, include something about the good life in your title or subtitle. Those three words grouped together in that order seem to have a magical power. After all, isn't that what we all want? The good life. If the good life could be turned into a product, everyone would want a piece of it. Nothing would be more profitable. Can you imagine selling such a thing? Get your good life and find everything humankind has wanted since the beginning of time. Adam missed it. Plato couldn't find it. Nietzsche tried his best to give it words. The good life slipped through their fingers, but today you can have yours for a deal of a price. This may seem ridiculous and absurd, but entire industries and religions are built on our dissatisfaction with life. Life Life-changing products fly off assembly lines. We want the good life and we're willing to pay for it. We'll drop thousands on anything that gives us even a taste of what we crave. The credit card companies love this. The problem is, we weren't created for just a nibble of the good life. We were designed to enjoy the whole thing. And until life reaches into the deepest regions of our being, we'll find ourselves disillusioned, annoyed, and victimized by the latest quack pushing life-changing gizmos and gadgets. Our quest for the good life has led us into the information age. We are collecting and aggregating information at unprecedented rates, hoping that some data cluster will crack the code and unlock the next level of human existence. But there's just so much data, so many podcasts to listen to, books to read, TED Talks to watch, conferences to attend, people to meet, photos to take, experiences to have. 
With this abundance of data, how can we know when we're headed in the right direction? Next time you're searching for a book online or in a store, take a look at some of the best-selling self-help books. You'll find books on organization, minimalism, my wife loves these, busyness, productivity, confidence, success, parenting, teamwork, sexuality, making money, managing money, investing money, printing money. You get the idea. Many of these books have a promise. If you will just start doing this, your life will change for the better. One book will declare that less is the key to happiness, offering foolproof ways to manage your frantic pace of life and encouraging a divorce from busyness so you can enjoy an unhurried life free from the tyrannies of incessant doing. But its shelf companion, collecting dust only inches away, will assert that more is, well, more, revealing never-before-heard-of tricks to do more with less time so you can accomplish more with the free time you have. Hmm. As human beings... We're chronic pendulum swingers. Our lives get too busy, so we make work-life balance our singular pursuit. Or we find ourselves complacent and getting soft, so we find countless ways to energize our vocations and pursuits. Each month, it's a new diet, a new scheduling technique, a new productivity app, a new parenting method, a new religious experience. The list has no end. We're chasing something we can never seem to catch. We're looking for something that's other than what we've known. Now, don't get me wrong. I love learning new ideas and exploring great tools. From time to time, I indulge in these life-changing products, and some actually do offer tips and tricks that help us manage our lives. But I've found that most products think too highly of their transformational power. They can help us manage life, but they cannot give life, even the best of them. Despite their limited power, we still consume self-help books, TED Talks, courses, podcasts, and so on at a frantic pace. Why? Because we want what they promise. We want comfort value, a good pace of life, success, better relationships, steamy marriages, kids who contribute to society. In other words, we want the good life. We want to feel alive. We want to be alive. But could it be that we're dissatisfied with what we found because we're chasing shadows instead of pursuing the life we were made for? Deep down, we know we are destined for more, and it drives us crazy. More to life. No matter how much we accomplish or experience, we all come back to the sense that there has to be more to life. And we're given a choice as we seek an answer. We can either build bigger, busying ourselves through greater exploits or distractions, or we can dig deeper, exploring the spiritual side of our humanity. It doesn't take a genius to realize fulfillment isn't found in the conquest of the material world. Affluence and wealth do not guarantee happiness. And yet we spend much of our lives as slaves to our material gods. Our other option is to come to a place where we acknowledge the existence of something greater within or beyond us, a transcendent source of the good life. But there's so much confusion in the spiritual world, the land of transcendence. As we dig deeper, we find that the word spiritual has been diluted to capture a variety of conflicting experiences, beliefs, and religions. It's been appropriated to prey on weak minds and desperate hearts. It's been detached from our everyday material lives and often relegated to relics, holy buildings, or ephemeral fancies. Even among Christians, a people group that supposedly represents almost one-third of the humans who call this planet home, there is contention around what our spiritual or religious lives should look like. You'll find countless opinions on how, practically speaking, our spirituality should shape our day-to-day -day lives. Yet even in our differences, we Christians are all convinced that humanity requires a relationship with God before it can be itself. In a guide for the perplexed, E.F. Schumacher reminded readers that the scholastics used to say, Homo non propria humana says superhumanas est, 
which means that to be properly human, you must go beyond the merely human. So what does it mean to go beyond the merely human? How do we tap into a new way of living that resonates with our irrepressible desire for something greater than what we've known? How do we find a hope that infuses us with a purpose and an identity that satisfies our souls? We start with knowing this. We were created for goodness and perfection. That's why we innovate, progress, and change. But if our progress loses its purpose, it cannibalizes our humanity, leaving us distracted and disoriented. If innovation and change are not fulfilling our need to connect, to belong, to express, to love, to feel alive, how can they satisfy? Death for life. Jesus, the hero of the world's most well-known spiritual narrative, offers us a mysteriously clear path to the good life. Anyone who doesn't pick up their cross and follow after me doesn't deserve me. If you find your life, you'll lose it. If you lose your life because of me, you'll find it. Matthew chapter 10, verses 38 through 39. To paraphrase, die to self, follow him, and in this journey of losing your life, you'll find the life you were made for. At first glance, Jesus' words seem harsh and anti-life. I mean, what's up with all this talk about death? But Jesus is not being harsh. He's simply stating a fact. Outside of him, there is no life, only existence. We were made for life, the God-infused life. And until we experience this kind of life and make it our pursuit, we will find ourselves hopelessly dissatisfied with the status quo. In the first chapter of Matthew, we find a clear description of Jesus' purpose. He will save us from our sins, keeping us from missing the true end and scope of life, which is God. With Christ comes the miraculous gift of rebirth, of new life, and awakening from a life of shadows. Though humanity was made in God's image, over the course of our existence, we relentlessly unmade ourselves. In our pursuit of life apart from God, we stripped ourselves from the source of life. But God, the Good Father, refused to let our mistake define us. In the greatest divine twist imaginable, He became a man to reclaim the life and purpose humanity had spurned. Jesus, the Son of God, fully man and fully God, not compromising His humanity or His divinity, has awakened our world from its slumber and offers us the chance to find the life we've been looking for. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. John chapter 6, verse 35. For 30 plus years, Jesus walked this earth as a human being, revealing the only way to do life. He was a real person. He traveled to real cities. He died on a hill with a name. But his time on earth was just the beginning. His example was catalytic and unprecedented. But alone, it wasn't enough. If a mere model of right and wrong could engender change, his death would have been in vain. When he died, he sent his spirit to teach us the intricacies of the art of living. That's why his spirit is the only one who can fill our spiritual vacuum, helping us become truly human. What must I do? You know you were created for more than what you see. God did, after all, put eternity in our hearts. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. There's an expansiveness inside us that cannot be denied. That's why we're so eager to find a life that transcends what we now know. And while this eternal life is within us, it requires us to look beyond ourselves, admitting we're incomplete, which is not easy to do. Like Adam and Eve before us, we want to be like God, apart from God. They were terrified of dependence, and so are we. Let's look at one of Jesus' most famous conversations about finding life. This interaction was so memorable, it was recorded in Matthew chapter 19, Mark chapter 10, and Luke chapter 18. Each gospel captures different facets of the story, so in places I've combined all three accounts. 
Our narrative begins with an eager young man. He is wealthy and possesses great status. He's young, rich, and famous. In other words, he's living the good life. Luke's gospel gives us reason to believe he was also a synagogue official, a member of the religious elite. It's evident this man was important, and it's probable his fraternizing with the likes of Jesus was discouraged among his peers. Yet here we find him in the dirt and on his knees, in public, mind you, begging Jesus for answers. Mark's account also reveals that he ran to Jesus. In Jewish culture, such running was disgraceful and unfit for a man of his status. Clearly, this man was desperate and willing to discard decorum's demands. Upon capturing Jesus' attention, he implores, Good teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Let's break down this question. First, the rich young man, Richie for short, honors Jesus by calling him teacher. He also sees Jesus as a good man, so he appeals to his goodness. Clearly, he respects Jesus and believes Jesus is capable of giving him the answer he seeks. Otherwise, Richie wouldn't risk his dignity. Remember, this is risky business for someone of Richie's stature. Jesus is, after all, an unlearned man, a lowly carpenter. Second, notice that Richie believes eternal life can be obtained by an act of goodness, and more specifically, an act of goodness performed by him. Third, notice who the hero is. Based on how Richie positions his inquiry, he, once discovering the truth, would be the hero, the one who would right the ship. Jesus, the teacher, would point him in the right direction but Richie would do all the heavy lifting. Fourth, this man is seeking eternal life, something he has not attained but greatly desires. Richie, like all of us, has an innate dissatisfaction with the life he's known. I believe his desire was to experience qualities of the eternal in the temporal. As an educated first century Jew, he would have been very familiar with the promise of God's Messiah and the eternal kingdom, a kingdom marked by peace, wholeness, and prosperity. With that in mind, Let's see how Jesus responds to such a noble request from this distinguished man. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. I've always been puzzled by Jesus' response. It seems that Jesus is saying that he, the Son of God, is not good. But isn't Jesus one with the Father? So if the Father is good, wouldn't Jesus be good? And if Jesus and the Father are one, it's not Jesus' response misleading at best and a lie at worst. Let's reframe the interaction by answering this question. Is Richie appealing to the goodness of Jesus' humanity or the goodness of his divinity? Richie sees Jesus as merely human, so Jesus answers as any human must. No one is good except God alone. Yet Jesus was and is both God and man, but Richie saw only humanity. I'm confident Richie would have received a different answer if he had appealed to Jesus' divinity. As it was, Richie was not looking for a God to save him. He was looking for a man to teach him. So Jesus plays Richie's game. Richie wants to use his goodness to access life, and Jesus indulges him by quoting the good law. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Love your neighbor as yourself. Notice that Jesus identifies only behaviors, those that are evident to others. He doesn't address the condition of Richie's heart. He also doesn't reference any of the vertical commandments, the ones that cover our relationship with God. Richie's next words reveal that his own perceived goodness was the God of his heart, an idol that he drew strength from. We now see that Richie was trying to leverage his goodness to save himself from the futility and emptiness of life apart from God's spirit. He says, all these I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? We now see both frustration and contempt in Richie's response. 
He's frustrated because Jesus isn't giving him anything new. He's contemptuous because Jesus is offering instructions that he apparently mastered when he was a wee child. Here's the important question for us to ask ourselves. Why wasn't Richie relieved by Jesus's response? If he had indeed followed Jesus' counsel, then he was set. He had kept the law. Based on what Jesus said, eternal life was his, right? But Richie knew there was more. He had mastered human goodness, yet it had failed to make him good. It had failed to perfect his soul. Deep down, he knew he was wretched. He knew he wasn't experiencing the promised life. He wrestled with emptiness and purposelessness. Richie had summited the mountain of human perfection and found it devoid of anything great. He could also sense that the only thing his climb had achieved was an awareness of an infinitely greater climb that still stood before him, one that would require something new, something different, something other and more than who he had been and what he had been doing since he was a child. But Jesus wasn't giving him what he needed to scale the great mountain of goodness, and Richie couldn't shake the sense that he still lacked something. How does Jesus respond to Richie's frustration? With love. Jesus loves him by speaking heaven's language in words Richie can understand. If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Richie is sorrowed by Jesus' response, but I think he saw it coming. Jesus pinpointed a lack of goodness that our friend had been able to hide. Yes, Richie wanted to experience eternal life, but he could not separate himself from the comforts of his present position. To give up his goods would be to part from his identity. At that time, one did not have status without wealth. Richie's wealth and possessions made him appear good in the eyes of others. He was still the hero of his story, so he needed to appear good. And what good is a man who has nothing? Jesus brought him to the brink of death, death to self, and offered a ticket into the perfect life, the good life. But the man could not take the ticket. He couldn't take the ticket because it came from someone else. He wanted to be the master of his fate, the grantor of his goodness, and the prince of his perfection. He wasn't looking for a lord and savior. He was looking for a good teacher. So when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. How could Jesus let this man get away? Wasn't he a prime candidate for building God's kingdom? Did he not possess great status and resources that could be leveraged to impact lives for the gospel? Sure, he was a bit full of himself and too attached to stuff. But Jesus could fix our rich friend, right? Everyone, including the disciples, were in shock. They probably compared themselves to Richie and found themselves lacking. Remember, these were the guys who constantly competed to be the greatest. I imagine Peter was threatened when Jesus invited Richie to follow him. This man seemed to have it all going for him. Wealth, godliness, status, passion. But he went away because of his imperfection. By the time Richie came onto the scene, the disciples had made a lot of mistakes. And Jesus wasn't reluctant to point them out. These guys were a mess. That's why when Richie is dismissed, the disciples ask Jesus, Who then can be saved? Matthew chapter 19, verse 25. In other words, this guy was far more perfect than any of us. Are we not to inherit eternal life? Jesus replies to them, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Verse 26. Eternal life cannot be accessed by our goodness, but by receiving God's goodness. No matter how good we make ourselves, we cannot become what we were created to be. And we won't experience the good life we all want until we drink from its source. Likely, Richie went home to his wealth, possessions, and status only to discover that he had tasted life and rejected it. The Thing Before the Thing 
Some people mistakenly believe the story of the rich young man is just about getting rid of wealth or material goods. But here's the thing. Possessions are merely tools. They are neither inherently good nor inherently bad. The thing Jesus wanted Richie to do was follow him. Selling his possessions was just the thing before the thing. Jesus knew the only way for this man to discover the good life was to follow him and learn the nuances and otherworldly subtleties of the God life, the life that gives up everything to have the one thing worth having. Richie's possessions were holding him back. Jesus offered freedom from their control. Keep in mind, Jesus did not require all his followers to sell everything they had and give their possessions to the poor. Upon Jesus' death, one of his disciples, Joseph of Arimathea, was granted an audience with Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea. Joseph was able to convince Pilate to let him bury Jesus' body in his own tomb. I have no doubt that he paid a high price for Jesus' body. In fact, the Bible calls Joseph a rich man. Matthew chapter 27, verse 57. The point is that possessions can neither give nor take away life. They are products of life, not life itself. We all have things before the thing, things that keep us from experiencing what will make us come alive, things that keep us from trading our lives for what matters most, things that keep us from following Jesus and learning from him. To find life, you must place these things, your career, family, money, dreams, success, relationships in their proper place. These things, while good, aren't capable of taking you where you want to go. They do, however, travel well on the back of something greater. Criminal. A thief, let's call him criminal, finds himself on death's door. A lifetime of pain and disappointment plays in the theater of his mind. He has wasted his life violating others and is now found unworthy to live. Out of the corner of his eye, he spots an outlet for his anguish. Desperate to numb his pain, he hurls insults at a guy named Jesus, the King of the Jews. I imagine criminal thinking, I might be a criminal, but at least I don't pretend to be the son of God. This Jesus is even worse than me. But then something happens. Criminal sees Jesus do something he'd never seen before. He watches the son of God cry out for the forgiveness of his tormentors, even while they hurl insults and inflict unthinkable pain. In an instant, criminal's eyes open. What he's seeing is beyond human. Criminal realizes he has a front row seat to the execution of life itself. Jesus' followers have hidden from the cross. Whether out of fear or pain, they can't stomach watching their Messiah murdered. But criminal has no choice. His proximity puts him in the throes of grotesque glory. I imagine him, despite his pain, being transfixed by the Holy One. But then he's awakened from his days. What are these new insults I hear? He thinks. He looks over to see the other criminal still mocking the Son of God. And this criminal isn't just mocking Jesus. He's also mocking his saving power, the very reason Jesus is on the cross. I love criminals' indignation. Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Luke chapter 23, verses 40 through 42. These are this man's final moments. Breath will soon leave his body. Yet here we find him giving his last heave to defend innocence and request forgiveness. Criminal has become a new man, and at death's door he has found new life, a life that can even energize his death. How will Jesus respond to criminal's swan song, this desperate cry from the man who was unfit to live? Jesus says to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Verse 43. Criminal. 
just like the rich young man, sought the path to eternal life. The criminal had no goodness to hold on to. He wasn't looking for a good teacher. He knew he needed a savior. Two men, one pursuit, two very different responses. So many of us miss out on life because we're looking for a better version of what we've known. But the good life we all crave is paradoxical. Death to find life and reaches beyond the wisdom of this world. And here's the reason. God's not interested in just giving us a better life. He's not a self-help guru who's looking to make a quick buck off our nominal improvement. God's in the business of lasting, holistic transformation for the sake of eternal vocation. He has given us a calling, identity, and community that reach beyond the here and now. Our souls long for this new way of living. It's too spacious for our world's temporal fillings. There's a new life that is found only in the awakening of our true self. That's why the good life isn't something you find. It's someone you become. And it starts here, now. This new life dignifies time, space, and matter, igniting them with purpose. God loves our material world. He calls it good. He celebrates our advances in medicine, science, engineering, teaching, and so on. But there's much more than what we can build with our hands. And in the discovery of this more, our true self comes alive in hope, promise, and purpose. In the arms of this new life, you will find the power and the perspective to rise above the limitations of your present world and its ideas of goodness. By the power of God's eternal spirit, you can become a saint, someone whose life is marked by a hope and a purpose that astound our world and point people to the one who is life. But here's the thing. We will not find the good life until we leave our notions of goodness behind. Paradoxically, once we reject our understanding of the good life, we will find ourselves overcome by new life. As we yield to the magnitude of this new way of being, losing our smallness and God's largeness, we will become people who participate in the mystery of life. We will become saints. And that's chapter one. I don't know if you caught, but toward the end there, I made the statement that the good life isn't something you find, it's someone you become. And the rest of this book is about that journey of becoming. I lay down a vision of what it means to become more than Christians, of what it means to be in tune with the deepest parts of who we are and experience God's fullness, everything that he has for us in this life now. Now, I'm going to be honest with y'all. This is this is difficult for me. It's difficult for me to be on here talking about this book that I wrote. But the reality is... like my name is on this book because I was the first one who got to read it. That's something my dad would always tell me when he would write a book. And I didn't really understand it until after I wrote this book because I go back through it and I read it now and I like it more than I did originally, which that normally doesn't happen when I write stuff. And also I read the words and I'm like, this is, this is too expansive for me. Like this is too big for me. I'm not capable of writing like this. And so I'm so excited for y'all to get this into your hands. And, and when you pre-order it, if you're listening to this before January 21, when you pre-order it, you're going to get the audiobook. You're going to get access to the online study for three months through all access. You're going to get digital files of chapter artwork. We did a illustration for each chapter. They're absolutely beautiful. And then you're also going to be entered to win a video chat with me. And all of that can be found at messengerpodcast.com. 
com forward slash offer. Now, if you're listening to this after January 21st, not to worry, you will still get in on some goodies. So go to messengerpodcast.com forward slash offer, and there will still be some things available to you. Okay, so that's Saints. We're going to tell you a bit more about it in the next episode as well. And honor that y'all have been involved with this. You've been a part of the journey. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And remember, as you go, you are a messenger. You are a saint to the people in your world. Your life is a message. So lean into God's grace and watch your world change. Until next time. Thanks for listening to The Messenger Podcast. Let us know your thoughts by leaving a review and be sure to subscribe and share these episodes through iTunes. You can connect with us through Facebook, Instagram, and through our website at messengerinternational.org. Until next time. Thank you.